While Moses was on Mount Sinai receiving instruction from God, the Israelites were backing out of their earlier promises to be obedient to his word, constructing a golden idol to worship. Our first reaction to that might be, how could they? But how often are we guilty of reacting desperately for deliverance from our fears, doubts, sorrows, and impatience? How often do we seek it from any source that will deliver on our timetable instead of God's? No matter how many times we replace our God, He will always be there through His love, mercy, and covenants to offer not just a way back, but the way forward. I invite you to join us in our study today and encourage each of us to request divine understanding so that the Spirit can teach us individually and specifically. Welcome to Come Follow Up. When I realize that I am heading down a wrong path or I've made a wrong choice, I like to stop and refocus and think about where I want my life to be headed. When I make a mistake, I feel that I have to talk to Heavenly Father about it. And I kneel in prayer and I open my heart and I ask for forgiveness. And I know that He can make my weakness a strength. It's not easy, and it's something that I've had to learn. Uh, But I turn to prayer and also find that scriptures bring me a great peace and help in overcoming discouragement. I find my way back by turning to the scriptures and turning to prayer and uh, trying to exercise humility and understand what I need to do better and what I need to change. Welcome everyone, thank you for being here today. Today's discussion topics come from our study from Exodus chapter 24 and chapters 31 through 34. And the first topic we're gonna discuss is, sin is turning away from God, but he offers a way back. And the second topic we're going to discuss is, covenants on the mountain with God. And to help us with our discussion today, we wanna welcome back our scholar, James Goldberg. Welcome, James. Good to be back. James is a writer, historian, scholar. My favorite part about you is you're an amazing poet. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. And joining us along with James is Teresa and her husband, Wayne Gardner. The Gardners recently were released as temple matron and president of the Madrid Spain Temple. And before that, they served in the temple presidency of the Tijuana, Mexico Temple. They also have served as mission president and companion. Gardners, thank you for being here. It's great to be here. Thank you for inviting us and having us. So let's dive into the first topic about sin is turning away from God, but he offers a way back. James, you want to give us a little bit of context setting up this topic? Yeah. So Moses, last episode we talked about how he'd gone up the mountain and got the tablets of the covenant, right? And comes back with the Ten Commandments and other instructions for the children of Israel. And initially... They're really happy about that, right? Well, it's interesting to note in Exodus 24 that actually twice the children uh, of Israel say in verse 3 and in verse 7, all the words which the Lord hath said will we do. And then they take it one step further in verse 7, all that the Lord hath said will we do and be obedient. So they've got this, this incredible resolve. And then... It's a part of the story we, we maybe miss. Maybe we watch too many movie versions. <laughs> Moses goes back up the mountain and he's taught about the tabernacle and, and temple worship and what it'll be for God to dwell among them in the wilderness. 
and he's gone a long time. Uh, it says in Exodus, and when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down out of the mount, right? So it took a long time, <laughs> and they get worried. Mm -hmm. It says, the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron and said unto him, up, make us gods which shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we wot not what has become of him. So after that resolve that they're going to do all the Lord commanded, which included that commandment not to make graven images, what do they do? They ask for a graven image because they're scared and there's delay and they want something to hold on to. And they promised twice. I know. It was, what, 40 days, but they lacked the faith or they had fear. They had doubt. It had been a long time. And so I think they just thought, is it ever going to happen? And so we need to create our own God. Wow. I'm curious. I'd love to ask the audience, why is it sometimes you think that when we're given a commandment, we have that desire, that motivation to keep it? What makes it hard sometimes to continue with that momentum? Shelby, go ahead. Uh, I think sometimes it's a struggle for me to be in the world, but not of the world. I make covenants and I'm so happy about them when I'm in a spiritual high. And sometimes maybe I get in a spiritual low. And I think it's just faith knowing that God has that plan set out that everyone, no matter where they are in life, he has our best interest at heart. When you have these high moments, what are the outside factors that are trying to drag you down? Like Satan, he wants to drag us down to the gulf of misery that other people, when they're in their spiritual low, they're not wanting to go to a spiritual high. They're wanting others to be dragged down with them. And I think that's just the constant struggle of recognizing what's dragging you down. Thank you for sharing that. Tom. I think when we make those initial covenants, we're full of excitement, we're full of energy, but then we don't realize we're in this for the long haul. <laughs> and sometimes we lose sight of how long it's gonna take. So we begin to get discouraged and we start to doubt. How have you been able to work through those moments, Tom? As you make promises, what is it that keeps you on that path to keep those? I have to have faith that the Lord is gonna fulfill his side of the covenant. And so I just have to keep trying a little harder and become humble and willing to stay with the Lord and stay with his plan. Even as we hear these experiences from others, it really does bring inspiration and to have us try to do the same thing. So thank you for sharing that, Tom. Here we have this massive congregation of people. And I imagine that there's some influence going on that maybe there was some hesitancy. Maybe there are some people that are like, no, I'm waiting but you're seeing this big group. And so they decide to do something about that. And I think it's important to note, just by way of context, that, that making a golden calf is not an idea that got out of nowhere. That's the same thing that, that you might have done in Egypt. The bull or calf is a symbol of, of lots of different gods. So they're looking around the neighborhood and everybody else seems to be doing fine and this is what they do. 
So it's not that they came up with a unique new way to be horrible, right? Uh, it's that the sin of the Israelites was getting impatient, getting worried, and saying, why can't we just be like everybody else? Sometimes it's not a sin, I think. Sometimes it's a disconnect. You may still know it's true, but your world's changed. I was experiencing the most happy, blissful time of my life with my companion. One night she woke me up to find that what we discovered the next day was that she had a silent type cancer and passed away very quickly, shortly thereafter. I don't think I had sinned, but there was a disconnect with the gospel at that point in my life. So sometimes I think it's not a golden calf or a sin. I think it's a disruption and an unplugging or a, a disconnect, a short, if you will. You know, as we talk about for the Israelites, they chose to, to create something that was to take the place of what was missing in their life. We had a wonderful uh, question come in from one of our viewers to help us relate to what the Israelites are doing in regards to creating this golden calf. Hi, my name is Dustin. I'm from Holiday, Utah. And my question is, what could the golden calf that Aaron creates and that Israel worships symbolize in our lives today? It's a really good question. I think that's a great question because sometimes we read the scriptures and we go, how do I identify with, with the prophets or, or the people who seem to be making the, the good choices, right? Mm -hmm. But often we should approach the scriptures and say, how are we like the people yeah. Yeah. who make mistakes? And that's okay. That's all part of our existence. And sometimes we may say, oh, they created a golden calf. I would never do that. <laughs> so that yeah. can't be me. <laughs> but the reality is... I absolutely, when I feel a disconnect, when I'm impatient, waiting on promises, I'll settle for something less, you know? So the golden, the golden calf could be settling for something less. Yeah, I think in my own life, how often do I put aside the things that are the most meaningful and significant and put a lot of my energy into maybe my work, uh -huh. right? Uh -huh. <laughs> and I'm focused so much on career rather than other things. I think another go-to golden calf or go-to God is social media. Mm -hmm. um, that becomes a time sponge. You can get sucked into that and that becomes, uh, for many people, your socialization where you get your advice. And that can just really eat up your life and your time and it becomes your golden calf. Yeah, it can be a golden calf. Not always because there are some very useful things. Mm -hmm. And Elder Ballard uh, really helps us kind of see the difference of specifically how we can use social media as a golden calf and as something that can be productive. He says, smartphones need to be our servants, not our masters. For example, if later tonight you share inspiring thoughts from this devotional on social media, your smartphone is a servant. If you randomly surf the internet, your smartphone is a master. And so it's like you're saying how sometimes these, these golden calves, they're not necessarily bad, horrible sins. It could be just something that is useful that we put ahead and we use it as our master instead of our servant. Hmm. On another episode, as we talked about the exodus out of Egypt, mm -hmm. um, we discussed how they were in the service of Pharaoh. That slavery, there's, there's the word avodah for service. And then they entered into the service of God. I think sometimes this servant-master distinction that Elder Ballard makes is interesting, right? Whenever you're using something 
to serve God, mm. to further goodness, then it's not a problem, mm. right? But sometimes we just really long for somebody to tell us what to do, <laughs> right? And some plan to keep us moving forward. And I know, I mean, you just get mentally exhausted. Right. The Apostle Paul calls it weary in your minds, mm -hmm. right? And that's, I think, when, mm. we're, when we're looking to these golden cabs. Mm -hmm. Moses was there for, for 40 days. That's a long time. And, and it talks about, and maybe you know exactly where it is, where he was delayed in coming down. Why is it that when we get so impatient, we just, we have a hard time waiting, you know, for things to come? I was reading a talk by Elder Worthlin, and he talked about patience or impatience. And he said that patience is very closely tied to faith. And when we are unduly impatient, we are suggesting that we know best, better than God. And I thought, oh yeah, how true that is. We think we know better. Okay, and I love that you said that because the topic that we're discussing today is about sin and how sin separates us from God. How do we see the Lord providing a way for them to come back? Well, Moses does intercede for the people as Christ did for us, he goes and, and says to the Lord, don't punish them, punish me, blot me out. And so he goes to bat for them. Mm -hmm. That's one way of making it back is we have a, someone who intercedes for us. Oh, that's part of all the big plan right. of salvation. I love this conversation because <laughs> to me, it tells you something about God that, that Moses is really upset when he sees uh, what the people have done and goes back to God first angry. And God sort of turns to him and says, well, I could wipe him out. We could start over and done it before it can do it again. And Moses goes, uh, wait, hold on, are you sure? And that's when, so Moses is kind of invited into this role of being an intercessor. And I think sometimes when we're interacting with God and conversing with him, I think it's interesting that God doesn't always directly answer our questions, but creates a conversation that can lead us into the answers that we need to find. But we need to be those active participants, like Moses. Mm -hmm. That is when the inspiration comes. That's when the Lord can talk to us, when we are active and proposing and internalizing it. What are your thoughts? When have you seen God offer you a way back when you felt like you have drifted a little bit through sin? Angie. Um, well, I, I was thinking of an experience I had not too long ago where I was just being very stubborn. <laughs> and there was a lot of things going wrong in my life, and I was mad at God for it. And for a good couple weeks, I just refused to pray. I was so mad I didn't want to pray at all. And I don't remember if it was my mom or dad or someone was like, well, at least pray to tell him you're mad, you know? Like, <laughs> if you're going to not, if you're going to avoid him, might as well just tell him. And so I said the shortest prayer I've ever said, and all I said was, God, I'm mad at you. Amen. <laughs> and in that exact moment, I just felt so much love, a little bit of like laughter from him as well. But I think that specific experience of, of saying that prayer and feeling just how much he cared about me motivated me to want to pray again and to start doing the things that I knew that I should have been doing in the first place. But I just needed a little push to do it. So, so what did you learn about God from that experience? I think he has a good sense of humor. <laughs> And I think um, he's not as hard on us as we think that he is. I think he understands how human we are. 
and how easy it is to lose our faith sometimes. I feel like we talk about faith and patience as if it's something that's really easy to have when it's really not. And we're really hard on ourselves when we're not automatically perfect. But I think God understands how hard we're trying. And even when we're not trying, He understands that we're trying to try. So I love that. James, I love when you open your scriptures. It shows me that, <laughs> all right, something good is coming. Uh, what do you have to teach us? Well, I was thinking about this question, right, of, of how do we get back? And Moses and God, in their conversation on the mountain, get to this issue. So in Exodus 33, 13 to 14, there's just a beautiful short exchange where Moses, after he's heard what's happened to the people, says to God, Now therefore I pray thee, if I have found grace in thy sight, Shew me now thy way, that I may know thee, that I might find grace in thy sight, and consider that this nation is thy people. So even when things get bad, we can trust in God's grace, right? And that's taught here right in Exodus at the beginning. And we can trust that we are always God's people, even when we're God's wayward people. Mm. And I love the next verse when the Lord responds, my presence shall go with thee, and I will give thee rest. And so there's a whole process of, of covenants and principles that helps us find that rest. But at the big picture level, we can always go to God as his people and say, if I've found grace in thy sight, show me the way and take the presence and the rest that, that he offers. James, thank you for sharing that. And what a great way to wrap up this first topic that sin is turning away from God, but he offers us a way back. The word covenant to me means like a contract per se. It's an agreement with Heavenly Father. And I know uh, that we're both entitled to do our parts. And I know if I do my part, he'll do his. The role covenants play in my life has evolved as I began first making covenants as a little child when I was baptized. I understand them more. I realize that I'm in a partnership with my Father in Heaven and that by realizing His role that I can become a better person. We need the covenants to be to closer to Him in this life and to be prepared to be together with Him after this life as well. So the next topic we're going to discuss is covenants on the mountain with God. And we're gonna have James give us a little bit of a background and contextualize this topic for us. Yeah, so after the children of Israel have set up this golden calf and served it instead of serving God, there are consequences. And I think it's interesting, we talk about God being merciful. Mercy implies that he cares what we did, mm. right? He's not an indifferent God. He's a God who understands the consequences of our actions, holds us to account, and then offers us this, this way, this return. And so if you go to Exodus chapter 34, verses 9 through 10, this is one example of where Moses is, is guiding the people back. Okay. And it says here, the same way that he'd said privately with God, he now says in front of the people in verse 9, if now I have found grace in thy sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray thee, go among us. For it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for thine inheritance. And then in verse 10, and he said, he being the Lord now, 
Behold, I make a covenant before all thy people. I will do marvels such as have not been done in all the earth, nor in any nation. So the children of Israel strayed from God. They turned aside quickly. But after they turn aside, the Lord reminds them that he's making a covenant with them and can do marvels among them like they've never seen before. Brother and Sister Garner, do you mind shedding some insight on how the Lord provides a way back through temple covenants, not only temple covenants, but just covenants in general? We first learn and make a covenant to be obedient. And when we get good at obeying, then he helps us understand how we can make another covenant to make a sacrifice. He then prepares us to consecrate ourselves. What a beautiful covenant to say, we will leave it all and give it all to thee. And that's a point where the Lord then invites us to visit with him. And the veil gets thinner and thinner where we can have a conversation with the Lord. And if we answer the questions because we've been a good student studying and feeling that love and making those covenants and keeping them to be invited to enter into the presence of God. That's God's plan for us, inviting us all the way back into his presence. I just thought of something that we, we talk a lot about these covenants in the temple. And I just want people to know, you don't have to be perfect at these covenants to come to the temple. Yes, that's the goal. But we just want to encourage everyone to come to the temple. It's not for perfect people. Otherwise, temples would be empty. Sometimes it can, be, you know, it can be discouraging, you know, to hear these conversations about all oh, the wonders of going into the temple and feeling that. So there are a lot of people that aren't on that path yet. What can they do to still partake of those blessings? Oh, there, there are so many things. There are so many covenants we make outside of the temple, um, baptismal covenants. And in fact, here in the, the sections or the, the chapters that we're studying, in verse 16 of Exodus 31, it says, Wherefore the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations for a perpetual covenant. So that's a covenant we keep also is keeping the Sabbath day holy or reverencing the Sabbath. Sometimes in life, <laughs> we end up in cycles of sin and shame, which we cover up with more sin, <laughs> okay. right? Because we just yeah. wanna feel something else. Mm -hmm. And so what we're trying to do is turn around, right? God wants to offer us an alternative to shame which is this return to covenant. And so sometimes it doesn't matter which covenant, right? But whether it's the Sabbath day and just carving ourselves out some time of peace on the Sabbath, or whether it's living those baptismal covenants to, to mourn with those who mourn, to reach beyond ourselves. Mm -hmm. I think we just have turning points, so many simple turning points in our lives where we can choose between doubling down on how badly we feel or reaching out towards something else that then helps us receive that, that peace and rest the Lord promised. I like a quote from uh, Brother Bradley Wilcox in which he said, some receive the mistaken message that they are not worthy to participate 
fully in the gospel because they are not completely free of bad habits. But then he continues with a beautiful thing when he says, God's message is that worthiness is not flawlessness. Worthiness is being honest and trying. I love that concept to remember. Worthiness is not flawlessness. The Lord wants us to come back so he can love us and encourage us and help us on our journey back. I also love when we think of weaknesses and habits or bad habits, a quote from Elder Richard G. Scott, and he said, the Lord sees weaknesses differently than he does rebellion. When the Lord speaks of weaknesses, it is always with mercy. It is always with mercy. We don't have to be flawless in bad habits in order to participate fully in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is providing a way back. I love that. I'd love to get a comment from the audience. As you are going through this alone, when have you felt God carry you up hence? Kristen. When I was first endowed, I had felt like I'd reached a point in my life where I was like ready for the next step. I was like, okay, let's go. I want to make new covenants. Like, I'm ready for this. And then when I did get endowed, I felt really weird spiritually. Like, I felt really off. I didn't know what was going on. Didn't make any sense. And it just, like, nothing had actually happened in my life aside from being in doubt. And so I was like, what is going on? Like, I should feel even closer to the Spirit at this point, at least I thought. Um, so I was just in this funk. Um, but I was like, okay, I'm just going to keep going to the temple and just hope that it, you know, works itself out. And, um, and then this one day specifically, I had walked out and standing right there was President Eyring. At the time, I just, oh my gosh, I kind of... I froze. I was like, what is happening? Um, I went up and I shook his hand and I didn't even say two words to him. It really was high. <laughs> and it was like this spiritual like awakening. It was like I just could feel it was like all at once. It was like the church is true. The Lord loves you. Everything's fine. Spirit back. Everything was normal. Like I, it's, it sounds crazy saying it sometimes, but it was like the Lord being there and I think he appreciated my efforts of like keep trying that I kept going even though I felt weird about it. He really appreciates our efforts and I think sometimes he waits to see kind of what you're going to do about it before he lends a hand and then he will lift you up and get you where you need to go. And how, how fun that he used a prophet <laughs> to help you uh, through, that, uh, through that process. Gardeners, as you have served in a temple for years, how have you seen the temple being used as a place for God to communicate and bless his children? <laughs> we, we saw it daily, um, daily, hourly. People made great sacrifices. We served in the Madrid-Spain temple. People would, you know, you just can't easily drive to the Madrid-Spain temple. There's only one temple in the entire country and there was only one temple in the entire Iberian Peninsula and people sacrifice greatly wow. to get to that temple and they'll come for a week or two weeks, stay in patron housing and do ordinances all day long, every, every session. And we can't believe the miracles that we saw. 
um, on a daily basis in many people's lives. People's lives were changed. Uh, just a, a quick thought, Wayne and I, we, we had a front row seat to watching people come to the temple and when they left the temple, there was a marked change wow. in their countenances, in the way that they walked. You know, often you go to the temple hurried, worried, <laughs> but when they left, they were calm, they were at peace. That's just one of the many miracles. Was there any particular one that stands out to you that you can recall? Well, Joy, our daughter-in-law, she and uh, actually our daughter, both of them, because of difficulties with uh, pregnancies, they're like, we're not having any more kids. <laughs> Both of them at different distinct times went to the temple, Celestial Room, and they were sitting there and both had very distinct impressions. You need to have one more child. What a blessing for our family. And we have two, yeah, wonderful grandchildren. All of our grandchildren are great, but as a result of them going to the temple, receiving revelation in the Celestial Room, we have. Thank you so much for sharing that. I, I wanted to ask you, James, as the topic that we're talking about is covenants on the mountain with God. Can you give us a little insider background on the, the correlation between mountains and temples and why does God use mountains so often to communicate with his prophets? Yeah, that's a great question because mountains are a, a high place and set apart, right? They can be this point of connection. They can be a bridge between our world and another world. I think sometimes of a of a temple as being like an umbilical cord to heaven, right? <laughs> like we're, we're still linked. They're not totally separate worlds. It is really interesting in these chapters of Exodus. Moses is up on the mountain, but the children of Israel are going to experience it not up on the mountain in the tabernacle that goes with them in the wilderness. And in some ways, the tabernacle is set up a lot like a, a home, right? Okay. And so there's God who will meet you on the mountain, right? Where you have these, these high moments where you maybe reached it with effort. But the temple is also a symbol of how God comes to live with us. And so I think, yeah, sometimes we need to metaphorically go up the mountain to meet God and get to those high points. And other times, we're not the only ones making effort, right? God is coming to dwell among us and the... The temple is a place is both mountain and home. I'm really excited to talk more about tabernacles in the footnotes portion of this episode. But I just want to thank you all for your comments and for your contributions to this wonderful discussion on the topic of covenants on the mountain with God. During today's show, I think the most impactful thing for me was our focus on how sin takes us away from God, but we can always come back to Him. I learned that the Savior loves and cares for all of us and wants all of us to succeed. I think it stimulated in me, again, a love for uh, what, our, what our ancient ancestors have gone through. It helps me reconnect with them uh, because they didn't have a perspective of the Savior that we have. Uh, we have so much more and I have a lot more empathy for them. Welcome to Come Follow Up Footnotes. As we get started into this, I wanted to bring something up that I think sometimes we can make the mistake um, when we look at the Come Follow Me resource. For this week, it goes Exodus 24 and it jumps to 31. Now, I hope that as members of the church are studying these chapters, they don't 
just jump over and skip because there's a lot of really good stuff that we miss. And uh, so I was hoping, James, that you could kind of shed some light on these in-between chapters for us. Yeah, I'd love to do that. And I will say, not everybody is in the time of their life to do a deep dive into Exodus. Mm -hmm. and, and the resource can be there to help you and guide you. There's nothing wrong with that. Right. But I was talking with uh, Brother Newman of mm -hmm. the General Sunday School Presidency, and he really had emphasized to me, you know, this Come Follow Me resource is useful and important, but it's not the point, right? Okay. The end is that we each have a personal relationship with the scriptures and are curious about them and dig okay. and get as much out as we can uh, from these books. And so these chapters we skipped over are an extended description where the Lord gives Moses instructions about how to build the tabernacle. And I think maybe the, the resource uh, lets people skip them because they can be kind of hard to make it through. There's a lot of detail. I really love these chapters. There's a, there's a little bit of a long story to why, okay? okay. So bear with me, guys, Buckle and join with me. Buckle up, everybody. <laughs> when I was a missionary, um, we learned German, right? I was in Germany. Growing up, I had never liked the epistles of Paul, right? They were just, when we did family scripture study, it was just so hard to tell what was going on. So I was so surprised on my mission when I open up in my German Bible and start almost by accident reading Paul, and it was all really clear. And my English was a lot better than my German. <laughs> But the German translation I was working from just happened to be simpler language. Mm -hmm. And King James, I speak very good English. <laughs> this is really challenging English for somebody living today. And so it kind of opened up my eyes to see there are new insights you can get when you approach the scriptures just through different language. I mean, you guys I have... I love, I can relate completely because when I started my first mission in Mexico, I didn't speak Spanish. And so, but I had to immerse myself in Spanish. And, um, and in fact, we had we received instruction from Elder Scott who said, you should read the scriptures in a different language because it'll give you different insight into the meaning. Yep. And since I didn't know Spanish very well, at least there was maybe one or two words I understood in the verse. And it's like, wow, that gave it completely <laughs> new meaning. For example? We were, we were studying the gospels and we were in Luke uh, let's go to Luke, uh, Luke 8, 46. <laughs> Here we go, thanks. It says, and Jesus said, somebody hath touched me for I perceive that virtue is gone out of me. But in Spanish, they use the word poder, which means power. Power has left me. And I love that combination of virtue is power. And so it just gave this story completely new meaning and I loved it. And I love that example because it's not that virtue is not correct. It's that we get richer when we can have these layers, oh, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Different hues in a color. Yes. So I came back from my mission. There are good reasons why we use King James in English. I think one of the biggest reasons is that's what past generations of Latter-day Saints used. Mm -hmm. So we can talk to them in a way, it's right? It's uniform, something we can always yeah. say. Okay. We, can, we can respond to the same scriptures that Joseph Smith did, that Heber J. Grant did. But after my mission, I thought, man, German was so good. Let me see what else is available in English. Cool. And so I think in personal study, members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints should feel confident and empowered to go just 
look at lots of different options. And obviously, some Bible translations may have some theological bias from the translators, but if you're looking at multiple translations, it can kind of cancel out, right? Yeah. You can find your way forward. So I was reading one to my siblings um, by a translator named Everett Fox. His um, interest is in capturing sort of the, the sound of the original. These were things that, that people would say, they'd tell. So it's got this really strong oral flair. You know I'm a poet, I love the poetic <laughs> quality. But I mean, my siblings were pretty young then, right? My youngest sister's 12 years younger than me, so she was in elementary school, and she'd sit and listen rap to Exodus <laughs> because of the sound, right? Wow. Um, so anyway, so I was used to, from, from that translation and other translations, this description of the tabernacle and that sort of thing, when it talks about the clothes the priests wear, well, okay, let me tell you this story. Okay. <laughs> Years later, that same sister who remembered as a little kid listening to Exodus was asking me, okay, what's the temple like, right? And I said, oh, easy. Let's go to Exodus. Let's go to the chapters where Moses finds out about the tabernacle, and that'll prep you great for the temple. And I opened it up, and it is miters and girdles and breeches and just words we don't use and every is day. Is that in these chapters? In the King it? James, yes. So like in chapter 28, okay. it's talking about um, Aaron and his sons and their roles as priests. And so it talks about temple clothing, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's right there in the scriptures. But... It, it was just not easy. I can see that in verse four. In the King minor. James English, okay. yeah, to go through it. And so I found another translation. I can't remember if we went to ESV, the English Standard Version, that's a more modern translation, or back to Everett Fox or something else, that they got her caps and sashes and garments. And you can imagine what a cap and a sash are gonna look like a lot more easily. Mm -hmm. And so when she had that language that made sense to her, it allowed her to have this visual. It allowed us to have a different conversation. And do you think that enhances the understanding of new temple goers when they can make those connections and have it like, okay, this makes sense in my mind now what they're talking about. So it's not this such a foreign experience. Yes, I think absolutely going to the temple is a, is a big event in your life. It's a sacred experience. And as you're preparing for a sacred experience, if you can go a little above and beyond, mm -hmm. okay. be intellectually curious, and the description of the tabernacle is one of the most detailed ones. Now, some of it in any translation is going to be cubits <laughs> and measures. Okay. And that's okay. You don't need to understand every word of the scriptures. But between that, you'll start to find these moments that give clear descriptions and give you some symbols to hold on to. There'll be other things that are maybe a little different, but still significant. It talks about, um, Aaron has these stones mm -hmm. in his case that are for the tribes of Israel. And there's a phrase where it says he, he carries their names into the Holy of Holies. And that's something I think about when I get to the temple. What does it mean for me, like for Aaron in the Bible, to carry a name through the temple wow. hmm. in remembrance before okay. the Lord. So, do you need these chapters to get to heaven? No, you'll be just fine. <laughs> but at those times in your life when you want something, or if you're preparing for that sacred experience for the first time, go find a translation and don't 
Don't be ashamed if you don't get it all. Find a translation that works for you and helps you just access that explanation and make your own connections. I like that. Thank oh, you. Yeah, it's um, because the temple experience the first time is very different. Um, and people don't know what to expect. Mm -hmm. And if they can have this kind of background going into it, it's so helpful. Yeah. yeah, it's really helpful. Okay, so let's talk about the tabernacle. What are they being asked to build? What are we looking at? What can, you know, as readers, what can they expect to, to discover as they're finding out what the Israelites are commanded to build and construct? Yeah, so we think of temples as single buildings. When they're in the wilderness, they can't do that. Mm -hmm. And so it's a, a series of uh, like tent walls they set up partitions. on frames, partitions, yeah. And then they can take it down and put it back up as they're traveling they're through the okay, wilderness. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They're moving. One thing you can get that's useful though is the structure of the tabernacle has to do with, with different entrances you're maybe passing through. Okay. So, so you'll come and you'll come to this entrance place, you'll move forward. There's a place with an altar. They've got some other things there. The light is significant and recognizing that, that the light in the temple is gonna have meaning, you can get that out of the tabernacle, and then it moves forward and until this holy of holies, okay. right? And so I think at a, a very simple level, what you'll see between all the descriptions of cubits is that we have spaces to pass through. Mm. So those are just kind of extra fun mm -hmm. insights that you can find as you dig deeper and, and read other texts, read commentaries about things. And, I mean, online these days, we're, we're blessed to live in days where there's no shortage of resources. Right. You can see people, if you're more visual, who have just sort of sketched out, here's the layout mm -hmm. of what the tabernacle would have mm -hmm. looked like, as close as we can understand based on this description. So don't be afraid to find those resources. Okay, I love that, that's great. Oh, that is great. Where do we wanna go from here? I have some thoughts about chapter 31 and when I read the, the synopsis or the heading to chapter 31, wow, that just really jumped out at me. It says, artisans inspired in building and furnishing the tabernacle. You know, a few years ago, I probably would have not thought much about that, but after having served in a temple for years, I know how true that is, that the artisans, the artists, the construction, the designers, all of these people are inspired in putting together a temple. Believe it or not, all of these things can really add to your, the temple experience, your spiritual experience. Everything in the temple can teach, not just the words and the covenants, but the grounds, the gardens, the architecture, the paintings, design, even furniture. All of these things can teach if our eyes are open and our hearts are open. And I have some examples. I can't tell you how many times I would find a patron or a worker in the temple and they'd just be staring at a painting in the temple and they would just be mesmerized with tears in their eyes. And I'd come up and ask them, are you okay? And they'd say, yes, I've been struggling with the problem for years and this painting has just answered my prayer. Wow. I mean, this happened numerous times. Another example of how furniture, furniture can teach. Wayne had just finished a ceiling in the ceiling room. And in the ceiling room, you know, you have the eternity mirrors mm -hmm. where they face each other and you just have all of these 
images multiplied. Wayne asked the couple to come up and look in the, in the mirrors. And then he had everyone in the wedding party go up and stand in the mirrors, and he had me come up also, and I couldn't help but look at myself in the mirror. Um, and I found myself kind of straining, looking around, trying to see eternity better. And I realized I was the problem. I was, I wanted to take myself out of the image wow. of the mirror because I couldn't see eternity clearly. And I thought, Wayne, this is a wonderful opportunity for teaching young couples. Any couple that comes to the temple is that in any marriage, conflict generally comes as a result of one or both focusing too much on themselves that they cannot see eternity clearly or the eternal perspective clearly. And I thought, you know, that is a great teaching tool from mirrors. I've said this before, but I think we believe that we came to Earth to get bodies mm -hmm. and, and all this art and architecture and the, the physical things around us are one way that God speaks to our spirits through our bodies. Mm -hmm. and, and that's just a beautiful thing mm -hmm. to me. And it's interesting how much, here's Moses on the mountain talking with God and God is taking time <laughs> to talk him through architecture and to say, okay, you might be getting a little overwhelmed, yeah. but here, <laughs> Let, let me get you Bezalel, the son of Uri. <laughs> he knows how to do some things. And just That's for in, those that want to follow along, we're in uh, chapter, chapter 31. Chapter 31, that was verse 2. And it says in verse 3, And I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom and in understanding and in knowledge and in all manner of workmanship. We've been talking all year about the different ways people experience the Holy Ghost. One of those ways is through creative inspiration. Mm -hmm. Yes. I'm going to talk about... Solomon's Knot. Solomon's Knot is found in mosques, in synagogues, and in the temple. We live in a world that is uh, very disposable. You use something and it's worn out, you're tired of it, you throw it away. But the Solomon's Knot that King Solomon used and is in the three cultures of Islam, the Jews and the Christians, which cannot be undone. It cannot be untied. That is a symbol that's so important in the temple when you think of being sealed mm. forever, for the eternities. Not till there's a misunderstanding, not till there's some disappointment, but forever. And so, this is in the door handle of the ordinances that are in the upper levels. And this As is in we, the Madrid, Spain In the Madrid, Temple? Spain Temple, wow. specifically. And I understand that it's been so touching to so many that now it is appearing in some of the architects and artisans of other newer temples are implementing, again, this Solomon's Knot. And so... You don't find that down in the baptistry. You don't find it in the changing room levels. But as you ascend the stairs and are going up, it's on the post, it's on the door handle as you go into an ordinance room or into the ceiling room or the celestial room. It's carved in the marble of the floor. All around to help us remember and teach us of something that's going to last beyond the here and the now. 
We've talked sometimes about how in the Doctrine and Covenants, the Lord promises to reach us after the manner of our own language. Mm. Mm -hmm. And I think, I mean, translation is one example mm -hmm. where sometimes yeah. we need to figure out what's the manner of my language? How can I understand this? Art is another way that the Lord can reach us after the manner of our language. And I love that in Spain, where these symbols from the Islamic, Jewish, and Christian influences came together, they've used that symbol, where another temple, they might use a different symbol. In the Salt Lake Temple, you see the, the uh, beehive <laughs> represented all over. In the Rome Temple, you see uh, the symbol of the olive. Yes. And, and in fact, the whole temple is shaped in the you know, like, yeah, olive. in the form of an olive, and, and you'll see stairs. that represented everywhere. I brought this because this is something actually stained glass from the Tijuana Temple where we served. And you may not know what that is, but that represents a bougainvillea. It's these plants that have these big tentacles, and they're fuchsia or red, and they're really, really bright and beautiful. several different colors uh, the plants right. can have. And so this is, at the Tijuana Temple, the gardens are resplendent with this fuchsia bougainvillea, but also this symbol with the three petals of the bougainvillea is represented all throughout the temple, again, on doorknobs, and it's painted on the ceiling of several uh, rooms. And it's interesting, the bougainvillea, I'm gonna tell you a little bit about the bougainvillea plant. <laughs> anyway, it's very resistant to pests and drought, but also it's very moldable or malleable. You can take the tentacles of the plant and you can wrap it around the trunk of a tree or over walls, or you can mold it. And so to me, this was a real important teaching point for me. Every time I would go into the celestial room and look up at the ceiling and see the bougainvillea petals, I would think to myself, how can I be more moldable or malleable in the Lord's hands. I really didn't want to go on this, this mission to Tijuana. Um, so glad Originally. I did. Originally, <laughs> yes. At the beginning, you know, we were loving life and I just thought I was not ready to do that. But when we got there and I realized that I was being molded, I was being shaped, so that was really, the bougainvillea is a very important symbol for me. It yeah. was a teaching. And a lot of fun. For you. Exactly. Yeah. And that's just it. The same symbol can mean something different mm -hmm. for other people. Yeah. <laughs> the artisans of the temples mm -hmm. are, mm -hmm. are inspired. I want to ask one question of James before I, <laughs> okay. before I have a chance to yes. talk to James. Talking to Let's James. James, I've, I've struggled with this. In Exodus 33, verse 11. And the Lord spake unto Moses face to face as a man speaketh unto his friend. Okay? So I, I what am I doing wrong? I'm imagining <laughs> your Lord, the Lord, I'm Moses, and I'm talking to you. And we can see each other. And I'm talking, and you're talking to me, and I can hear, and you back and forth. And then I go down and read verse 20 in the same chapter. He, the Lord, said, Thou canst not see my face for there shall be no man see me and live. Can you put that together and help me? Yeah, it looks like there's a Joseph Smith translation there. Okay. <laughs> My recollection from, from a long time ago. But um, the other thing that I think is significant, this is a debate in religion, okay. right? Mm -hmm. So some people have taken it to mean this and other passages to mean that, that God doesn't have a face, right? That, that you can't see God's face. We tend to take it 
a little more directly that, that you can see God's face and talk with God face to face, but you need to be prepared and sanctified. And that's why there's this warning, right? That you don't just casually walk up <laughs> and talk face to face okay. with the Lord. The glory of the Lord has a power. And so we need to be sanctified and prepared to have those experiences. And that's true whether we're seeing God face to face the way Moses did or feeling that same intensity of God's presence in, in other ways through other senses. And that, that explains that in here in the JST. He says at this time, you know, meaning there is a preparation. It says you cannot see my face at this time lest mine anger be kindled against thee also and I destroy yeah. thee. And so, so there are moments when we're, when we're ready and moments when, when we're not. I think it's interesting too, in the tabernacle, you've got this architecture and you have things like altars, right? So an altar is a place where, where they offered sacrifice, where you can be reconciled to God, where you can reach out and call out to God for help. And those are on the way then toward ultimately what you reached in the tabernacle was God's mercy seat, which is like a throne of God, right? This is just a place where he can sit down with you. Mm -hmm. But I love I like that, that name, the mercy seat, mm -hmm. where God's helped us be prepared to enter his presence because naturally as humans, we're not there yet. But that doesn't mean it, we'll never get there. It's impossible. Thank you. All right, Teresa, in the simplest manner, will you just tell people what will a temple do for them? Wow. I mean, as we mentioned earlier, it's, it's a changer. It's a life changer. But the temple and keeping its um, covenants, it's, it will give you power and strength and protection. I think of the dedicatory prayer in the Kirtland Temple where Joseph Smith tells them that, you know, angels will have charge over you and you'll be watched over. And I believe that, I know that, we have felt that. We have been watched over and protected. And when you make sacrifices to go to the temple, as President Nelson says, he says, I promise you, you will receive, I will bring the miracles that he knows you need when you sacrifice to serve and worship in his temples. That's the bottom line. I mean, really, that's, that's what it's all about. I love that. Thank you so much. This has been a very enriching conversation. And I love how this, all this talk about a temple really ties into the two topics that we've been discussing. Sin is turning away from God, but he offers a way back and covenants on the mountain with God. I wanna thank you all for joining us this week. And we wanna remind you that if throughout this episode, you have felt a prompting from the Holy Ghost to do something that you will take the courage and you will act upon that. Thanks again. Please come back next week for another episode of Come Follow Up. Come Follow Up is a production of BYU Broadcasting.